Thank you for listening to Truth in Life, a concise Christian belief series. This class was taught on a Sunday morning at Christ the Word Church because we believe that God's Word is truth and that His truth should shape our lives. For more information on our church, visit ChristTheWord.com. All right, let's go. We got to get started. I do that all the time at school. I'll say it's, let's go, bell's about to ring. It already rang. I stand in the hall and say, 15 seconds. But we're past that. We're going to pray. We're going to get rolling. If people don't get the beginning of this lesson, it's their loss. We're going to do some little church history here, which uh, David, Pastor David covered uh, some of what, what I'm going to talk about, but it's, I'm going to try to be brief. I've got a lot of stuff today. This is my longest one. I mean, it's just like... So we want to get rolling, and one of my favorite ones, too. So um, compelling, and to be sure. Father, thank you for getting us together to look at more closely who you are and how you affect our lives, how you, can, you ordain our lives. You, you are intimately involved in every aspect of our life, and we fail to recognize that. And perhaps if we did, Maybe we would live differently. We pray that we would change, change in a good way, that we'd be mindful of your providence, that we'd be less prone to complain and more prone to pray and pursue holiness. Bless our time. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So, um, one of the uh, fundamental questions I have for us this morning is, what does the church believe? This is a general question, of course. And so I wanted to, uh, the church historically has relied on creeds and confessions. And so um, the first one um, is the Apostles' Creed, an early version of what later became the Apostles' Creed called the Old Roman Creed was in use as early as the second century. Uh, the creed in its present form, this one, uh, dates back, this is only, of course, the beginning of it, dates back to the 4th century. This is often recognized as the oldest statement of faith in the Christian church. And this creed um, defines core beliefs about God, Jesus, the church, and salvation. And in fact, in the About Us section, if you go to the Christ the Word website and look in the About Us section and say you know, the what do we believe, the Apostles' Creed is presented at what, as what Christ the Word Church believes. Um, the second one, just not much later, was the Nicene Creed. And like the Apostles' Creed, this is an ecumenical statement. By ecumenical, I mean um, not denominational. In other words, people of all different types of Christians, churches that would have been Eastern Orthodox, Western uh, as well. So it's, an, uh, it's affirmed by Roman Catholic, Eastern Orthodox, Anglican, and many mainline uh, Protestant churches. This, church, this uh, creed was established by a council of Christian bishops who convened um, is in the Byzantine city of Nicaea, a modern-day uh, Iznik, Turkey, by the em Roman Emperor Constantine in A.D. 325, so a pretty old creed. Uh, Pastor David did talk about this in his History of the Church series that he did for Sunday School recently. This council sought to illuminate a proper understanding of the Trinity and the divinity of Christ. Um, 
I think it would be a good idea for us to pay attention to, to look at these early creeds and, and, and see what they tell us about um, God. And so this is a really powerful statement. Um, you can kind of get an idea. This is only an excerpt. Uh, I think in the song, Holy, 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 if you've ever looked in hymn books, we don't use hymn books anymore, but usually at the bottom they have a name for um, the tune. You know what I'm talking about? Like, like I know one favorite hymn I like, the tune is, I never knew if it was fin Finlandia or Finlandia, but it's a real pretty tune. But the tune for Holy, 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 the name is Nicaea. Um, not an accident, of course. Um, this creed, um, the Chalcedonian Creed, uh, was adopted at the Council of Chalcedon in the 5th century in Asia Minor. And this was also in response to some heretical views about the nature of Christ. It took them decades of debate and discussion to, to hammer this out. And they concluded that Jesus is simultaneously fully God and fully man. And you can see it's very, very, very specific. The same perfect in Godhead and also perfect in manhood. In other words, like trying not, there's like leaving no doubt right, as to the nature of Christ. Um, so you might hear in, in theology we talk about Chalcedonian Christology, and this is what we're talking about, right? The, the, the nature of, of Jesus Christ being fully God, fully mad, simultaneously, and even now, which probably a lot of Christians don't realize. Um, and then a, a much later, and I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this, um, but you may hear the expression three forms of unity. These are official statements of doctrine by many uh, Reformed churches, and we're fast-forwarding a thousand years now, almost a thousand years. And so there's three of them. The Belgic Confession, written in 1561. It's one of the oldest and best-known Reformed confessions. Uh, and I put in little excerpts here so you can kind of get a feel for it. Um, the Heidelberg Catechism, uh, teaches uh, Christian doctrine in a form of questions and answer. And you can see, you know, what is, what is your only comfort in life and death? That I am not my own, but belong with body and soul, both in life and death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. That's just an example of one of the many questions in the Heidelberg Catechism. And then the Canons of Dort expanded on the Belgic Confession and was really a response to Arminian theology. Okay, I'm building up to something here. And so after that, the Westminster Assembly uh, was formed shortly after the Canons of Dort. So I'm trying to give us a little history here. Um, this was not a typical uh, ecclesiastical assembly. Unlike most councils organized by the church, the Westminster Assembly was an advisory commission called by the English Parliament, which seems kind of unusual. The plan was to propose legislation to restructure the Church of England during a time of great religious and political turmoil. I've had a lot of fun researching the formation and the history around the Westminster Assembly. It is incredible. The history is very, very um, compelling. I mean, exciting. It's, uh, um, so this is King James, and you can see he was, uh, these were his lounging clothes, I'm sure. Um, 
you can see, this is the, this is the King James Bible is named after him. He didn't really even want the King James Bible. It, he didn't like the, um, the nonconformists, the Puritans. By nonconformists, these are people that didn't want to conform to the high church, uh, the Church of England, and, and that was trying to kind of uh, become similar to Roman Catholic, but not be Roman Catholic. And so um, King James didn't like the Puritans, but he, he said, I'm going to have this council and get together. We're going to talk about religion. But then he didn't let them come until like a few days later after they started. And once, the first, once they mentioned that they wanted to get rid of the bishops, he had a fit, right? But the Puritans were good, <clears throat> were, um, good businessmen. They were, um, uh, they were represented well in Parliament. They had, even though they were a minority, they still had some influence, kind of like the religious right today, in a sense. We certainly don't control politics in this country by any stretch, but we do have a, a, a significant voice. We can't be ignored. And so they couldn't be ignored. And so he kind of threw them a bone and said, okay, well, you know, let's make this Bible. We'll, we'll do that. We'll make an English Bible, but on certain conditions. And, you know, he didn't want footnotes like the Geneva Bible because he didn't want, he wanted this to be, and he wanted it to be, interestingly, he wanted it to be in the common vernacular. The King James Bible was intended to be read publicly, orally. I mean, let's face it, most of, most of you know, the, England was probably illiterate and when this Bible was printed. Um, even the front, this front piece or title page, I find this remarkable, um, to the most high and mighty prince, uh, a King James by the grace of God. And he's, it says, the king of Great Britain, France, Ireland defender, even king of France, he didn't rule France, but they styled themselves as being in control of France. Um, obviously not a modest fellow. Um, and so this is the background leading up to then King Charles. King Charles I succeeded his father, and even though neither one of them cared a lick about religion, except for their own personal gain, James was more arrogant and not a, a, not a, a wise politician. And he strived to rule England and Scotland had finally been, and Ireland had finally been joined together, so they were king of, of you know, all three, which was unusual at the time because they were always fighting. And he ruled as an absolute monarch without the interference of parliament. He believed in the divine right of kings. And so this is Charles I, and so he's right after, um, he's right after uh, King, King James. And so he was trying to move the Church of England to adopt, his wife was Catholic, uh, people were, Protestants were really worried about that, and they thought that he was going to move the church, or that he was trying to move the church more toward Roman Catholicism. And this drove the Puritans crazy, right? They wanted to get rid of the bishops, and he insisted, and the reason he wanted bishops, why? Because he could control them. He put him in off. He even put him in, in office, political office. So if if the, if he appointed bishops, then he could essentially control the church, control the country. He wanted control of everything. He didn't really want parliament, and he was he was um, he had this dude that was going around fighting battles when they didn't need to, and so he was trying to finance these wars. He was raising, you know, they had like a, a ship tax, which only the counties that were on the water would get taxed. 
for, sh for shipbuilding, which sort of, sort of made sense because they, they benefited, right? Their economy benefited from the shipbuilding. Well, then he tar started charging everybody ship tax. Whether you, he was doing everything he could to raise money. And then he was going to each of the, the counties and saying, you need to give me more money. And he was coming up with ways of giving more tax without the approval of parliament. And people were hating him for it. It was terrible. And of course, he was at odds with the Puritans. So his policies were unpopular. And along with Archbishop William Laud, they tried to move the church um, more uh, closer to um, uh, Roman Catholicism. So when Charles tried to force Scotland to use the prayer book that they had brought into the Church of England, Scotland rebelled. And so out of desperation, after 11 years of ignoring Parliament, Charles wanted to fight Scotland to get them in line, so to speak, and went to call, call the Parliament and said, give me money. Well, they were, they were sympathetic with uh, Scotland and they said no. And they kicked them out. And so what ended up happening, it backfired. And so Laud was re uh, arrested. He was put on trial. Charles fled London. And this began a series of English civil wars. And the armies of the English and Scottish parliaments fought in the English Civil War. This was a setting, this was the setting, this was happening as the Westminster Assembly was forming. This was not, this was not like any other religious assembly. I'll, I put uh, it's a little picture, I mean, you think war, I mean, this is pretty brutal stuff. And so I put a picture of the two major characters over there. Um, Oliver Cromwell was a politician, and, and he really wasn't a military commander, but he did end up being a pretty good one. Um, he was more of a, he's a farmer turned uh, politician turned general. Um, he was a supporter of religious tolerance. He was convinced Calvinist, and he did uh, seek to um, uh, sustain a Puritan attitude of mind. Um, he actually signed the order of execution because they won, by the way. They, they beat back Charles's parliamentary force, so you had the, the royalists, which were, um, uh, had allegiance to the king, and then you had the parliamentarians, or roundheads, as they were sometimes called because of their haircut, because the, the royalists, or at least the, you saw the picture of, although it seems like, you uh, can't call Cromwell a roundhead, but the, the affluent, the, the, the people that, uh, the royalists, the ones that wanted, to, the bishops, and wanted, they had long hair, and they were, they were elegant and wore fancy clothes, and so the, uh, the, the nonconformists, the parliamentarians, the roundheads, all kind of the same group, they were uh, following out Cromwell, they, they beat, um, they beat uh, Charles's forces, the, the, the uh, royalist or loyalist forces, and Charles I is the only king, English king, to ever be executed. The only one. And Cromwell was, was, it wasn't until, Cromwell didn't do everything right. And so, again, I don't want to spend too much time on history. I'm just so fascinated by this. And a few hundred years later, he was finally recognized as being a not-so-bad guy, but he did go into Ireland and, and massacre people, and the people in Ireland will never forgive him for that, ever. Um, so Oliver has a bad name in Ireland, but he was actually the first person to lead England toward a Republican form of government. So he was ahead of his time, 
I mean, no one, I mean, the kings then, we use the word king, and we don't think anything bad of it, but really the kings then were dictators. They weren't, it, they weren't benevolent kings necessarily. Um, so um, this, was the, this was the cauldron in which the Westminster Assembly was, was formed. It was a matter, phys- literally life and death, because, you know, when you're on the wrong side, because later, you know, after Cromwell takes over, then his son comes along, he doesn't do a good job, they kick him out, and the kings are right back in. And all the people that signed the death warrant for, for Charles, they were either tracked down, killed, or they had died. They even, Cromwell, they even dug up his body and hung him, and then cut off his head. They, 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 have a, they, they have a really long memory, okay, when it comes to stuff like this. So, really, um, very, this is, this is the setting that the Westminster Confession and the catechisms were formed in the prayer book. Really remarkable history, right? The assembly was composed of approximately 120 ministers, they're called divines, which is kind of a weird expression, right? But it's like a, a therapist is called, it's because they're good at therapy, right? And so if you have a, a, a degree in divinity, then they called you a divine back then. That's just so you know. They weren't, it didn't mean they were spiritually cool or something, you know, just making sure. Because I always wondered, why do they call them divines? Um, there were a handful of laymen, but there's about 120 ministers um, and some laymen who are members of the House of Parliament. Um, they were all, while they were all Calvinists, they did represent different types of churches. There were Congregationalists and uh, Presbyterians. They met in Westminster Abbey for more than five and a half years while this was going on, which is crazy to me. During that time, they produced documents which are well, well known in use today, the Confession of Faith, the Larger Catechism, the Shorter Chasm, along with the Directory for um, Public Worship. And we studied the... Uh, in systematic theology in the pastor's college, we study the Westminster Confession. Far from being armchair theologians, these, these men understood that the matters that they were considering were truly matters of life and death. They pursued their ministry in the midst of a gruesome civil war that divided the country and resulted in the execution of the king. Um, last week I mentioned uh, Machen. So, uh, one of the last great Princeton theologians, Warfi was, was Machen's uh, mentor. And so he would be the generation before. And he, um, very precise, you can tell by this picture, pretty serious fellow. I think some secular person said that he never wrote an incomprehensible sentence in his life. Very precise, um, I'm paraphrasing, but um, and I, I hated to add to the lesson because there's so much in here, but I, I came across a really good quote uh, because I was doing more research this week. I like to tweak my lessons, right? Some, I like to try to make them more efficient. Instead, I made this one longer. This is a long quote, but it's a good one because if you wonder, why do we have the creeds? We've got the Bible. Why do we have confessions? We've got the Bible. This is a good statement as to why. And I'm going to read it out loud to make sure everybody gets it, because I think it's good. William Hetherington, in about 1850s, somewhere in the mid-1800s, wrote um, a history of the Westminster Confession. I was reading it. I came across this quote, thought it was really good. Thus, a confession of faith is not the very voice of divine truth, 
but the echo of that voice from souls that have heard its utterance, felt its power, and are answering to its call. And since she has been instituted for the purpose of teaching God's truth to an erring world, her duty to the world requires that she should leave it in no doubt respecting the manner in which she understands the message which she, the church, has to deliver. Without doing so, the church would be no teacher and the world might remain untaught so far as she was concerned. Does this make sense? Does this quote make sense? It, I put it here to give you a reason why we care about creeds and confessions. It's a good idea to kind of summarize what we think we know, what we believe. It's why you know, churches have in the about us what we believe. And as I mentioned, in Christ the Word, we put the Apostles' Creed in there. It's what we believe. Um, R.C. Sproul uh, notes that the Westminster Confession is the most precise and accurate summary of the content of biblical Christianity ever set forth in creedal form. And he calls this paragraph right here an unequaled summary of Reformed theology. And I have to agree that it's pretty darn good. If I was going to come up with my own summary, I can't imagine writing anything even close to as comprehensive and as, as, as really well-worded as this. And it's worth reading. I hope everyone's reading it. God, the great creator of all things, doth uphold, direct, dispose, and govern all creatures, actions, and things, from the greatest even to the least, by his most wise and holy providence, according to his infallible foreknowledge, and the free and mutable counsel of his own will, to the praise of the glory of his wisdom, power, justice, goodness, and mercy. And you know I said at the beginning, I do not like reading slides. I kind of hate it when teachers do that. But I, it's so important, I wanted to make sure everyone read it, and the only way I could do it to make sure is to do it myself. And so hopefully I went slow enough that you could read it. This is a really good summary. Okay, so now I get to my, that's a long introduction, and, but I love talking about that history. I thought it was really fascinating. And so, um, but I would say the Westminster Standards often the mo offer the most clear and concise description of God's decrees. And that's what we're talking about now is God's eternal decrees. And so the, the catechism, for example, both the larger and the shorter, shorter, the catechism as a question and answer format, a simple question and an answer, always offering scripture proofs. And one of the questions in the catechism is, what are God's decrees? And so in the larger catechism, this is the answer. This is the answer, and I won't read it, so you can read it. I hope you all can. This is the answer to the question, what are God's decrees? And then in the shorter catechism, there is a, a um, well, a shorter version. <laughs> and so I'm going to go ahead and put that one up, and you can see uh, a shorter one here. Here's the question, here's the answer. The decrees of God are his eternal purpose according to the counsel of his will whereby for his own glory he hath foreordained, foreordained whatever come to pass. And so I ask you, when you look at this answer, assuming that it's a fair reflection of what we believe about God's decrees, what stands out to you? What stands out? Anything? This is where you get to say something. A word or two? What stands out? Anything? Nothing? Counsel of his will. What does that mean? Anybody? What's that? Trinity. Well, the Trinity carries it out. True. The counsel of his will. Um, what stands out to me, at least me personally, is two words. 
eternal that he, like everything that's going on that I'm even standing here was ordained from eternity past. Isn't that remarkable? That your children, your parents, that's just that eternal. And then here the other thing that stands out is the word purpose to me. That he has a reason. So I, I don't, you know, I, I told David, we were talking about it last night, we were decorating cookies, my family, my daughters, their husbands, decorating Christmas cookies, kind of an annual tradition. And they make some really great cookies. I've even stopped. I'm just being the kitchen slave because their cookies are amazing. And I'm not kidding. I almost put them up here. Um, <laughs> and, and we were talking about how we came, well, it was like 50-50 between coming to Christ the Word, well, actually with Springfield United Brethren, or a little startup Presbyterian church in, in Perrysburg. And we might have been here 25 years ago, and we're not. It turned out it's only, I don't know, seven years, six years, eight years, I don't know how long it's been here. And Pastor David said, God brought you here at just the right time. That's what this says. God brought the Myers family to Christ the Word at just the right time, and he planned it before eternity. Crazy, huh? So, um, God's decrees are eternal and with purpose. And I hope that you're, I'm not going to read all these scripture verses. I'd like you to read them. They are in your notes. I'm not just, everything what's great about the catechism and the confession, especially the confession, is there are scripture proofs for everything. And it's free. You can get it online. If you're curious, you can Google it. There's just Lots of different sources for, the, for all the Westminster standards. And there are scripture proofs. Um, Psalm 33:11 is solid. Um, same way with this passage in Isaiah. I, again, I, I couldn't even pick one verse to summarize what I've been teaching. But if I had a top 10, this is in there. Okay, I'm a list guy. I'm always thinking like that. List, I, I, my top 10. But... My purpose will be established and I will accomplish my good pleasure. And so, you know, tragic events, you know, it, it, it often leads us to think, you know, they can be heartbreaking. The unfolding of history, though, is not a series of random events. It's not. My brother was tra tragically murdered. And I remember saying at the, at the, the funeral service, God knows what he's doing. He knows what he's doing. Yes, this is heartbreaking. Yes, there's a time to mourn. We, have a, we, are, we are just in being sad. But God knows what he's doing. I'm struck by, you know, we, we've been friends with the Keplers. Keplers and I see uh, Judy Bellis here. And we've been friends with the Keplers and the Bellises for over 30, 35 years. And when, when long before we came to Christ to where we went to the funeral for Camden Kepler, I still remember Pastor David saying, she lived a full life. That was a comfort to me. I've never forgotten that. Great, great sermon. She lived a full life. God knows what he's doing. That's why we can say with confidence that God works all things together for good. 
we're called according to his purpose. Right? For those who love him. You should be encouraged by that. But careful consideration of God's eternal decree should lead us to ask, what has God eternally decreed for me? That's a fair question, right? And he says to Jeremiah, before I formed you in the womb, I had plans for you. I had plans for you. And it's not just the prophets. He has plans for all of you. He does. He has plans for you. Um, and that's why Jeremiah 29, 11, isn't that precious, right? I have plans for you, he says, right? Plans for you to prosper. And there's lots of great examples of Scripture, but what I want to ask you is, what stands out as we read Scripture, what stands out about the basis of God's choice? So if we can read this, um, go ahead, Owen, Owen, just read this really loud. The Lord did not see his love. Set. Sorry. So think about what stands out about the basis of God's choice. Let's go a little bit further into chapter 9. Same, same topic, right? Do not say in your heart, when the Lord your God has driven you them out before you, because of my righteousness that brought, his law, brought me in to possess this land, but it is because of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord is dispossessing them before you. Know then, it is not because of your righteousness that the Lord your God is giving you this good land to possess, why, you're a stubborn people, right? Know then, it is not because of your righteousness. This is another, this is a great verse, and this is, I wanted to talk about this briefly. Um, translators have a really difficult time because it's hard to know exactly which preposition to use because sometimes the Greeks, they don't use them. Literally, this is NAS. And I put this NIV up here because I kind of favor the NIV to an extent. I like the preposition to instead of the word with, even though with is fair. Because what Paul is doing a wordplay here, I, I spent some time looking at the Greek on this. You don't need to be a scholar, you just read a lot. And it's sort of, he's saying called holy, or I'm sorry, he's saying called calling holy. Like called with a calling holy. He's doing a word play. He uses these two words together on purpose. And with is a fair translation. I think it's, it's reasonable. But I like that the NIV uses the, letter, the word to instead. Because it, we're called to live a holy life. The, just because he is, he's, ordained, he's ordained our future doesn't mean we need to say, oh, well, then I don't need to worry about it. The reality is, even though this was granted from all eternity, and this is where the NAS, I think, does a better job than the, so the NIV isn't perfect down here. It's really a hard job for the translators. Because I don't like the, 
the word before here, because before almost implies time. It's hard to use that word. It's not a continuum. So um, I like this phrase better. But I just, when you read this, he has saved us and called us to a holy calling. That's important, I think. And you think of in Romans 9. Romans 9 is what transformed my thinking about God's you know, sovereign will over my life. Right? Before the twins were born, before they did anything good or bad. Right? Why? Because he had purpose. So my purpose in election will stand. I want you to understand it's not because some people say, oh, well, God looks into the future. He's not subject to time and he can see what they did, good or bad. No, Paul's saying it's very clear. Before they did anything good or bad, I made my choice. I knew in advance. It's not, it's not the open theistic view as I, that I rejected earlier in the course. It's not that he's just waiting to see how things play out. No, he planned it before they were born. Before, not before they were born, before they, even, before they were in their mother's womb. Before eternity passed. It's clear. So... Um, Calvin's definition on, on election, I think, is solid. We call Prestonation's God eternal decree. I'll let you read it so I can keep talking. All Christians believe in predestination. It's in the Bible. At issue is how the notion of predestination is understood. Even Jacob, uh, Jacobus Arminius didn't, didn't deny this. Uh, look what he said. He knows there's predestination. Right? This is what he says. I, I, it's in the Bible. In fact, I have a friend who's, whose father, he's a, he's a PhD in theology, he's Arminian. We've had some arguments. I may have talked about him before. But his, one of his sons, he told me, is, is, thinks he's becoming a Calvinist. And we were at Cedar Point, and I'm talking, and we go, yeah, predestination's in the Bible. I go, yeah, it is. <laughs> you know, it's, it's plain, right? And so we were talking about it, standing in line, waiting, a few, some years back. And um, the problem is, Arminius asserted that God did not base his election on a divine arbitrary decree, but upon God's foreknowledge of man's merit. You see what he's doing here? He's saying God didn't just decide who gets to be in on some arbitrary decree, but rather he kind of looks ahead and sees what they're going to do. But see... By claiming, this is, my, this is my thinking, and I hope I'm right here, by claiming, I think I am, Calvin's view of predestination necessitates God's choice is arbitrary. In other words, by assuming that, by saying, oh, God's choice isn't arbitrary, what he did is he created a straw man argument. A straw man argument is when you misrepresent someone's view and you make it easy to, to defeat. You follow what I'm saying? So, he said, oh, well, God's choice can't be arbitrary, so that's why your position is wrong. Calvin and the Bible never said God's choice was arbitrary, right? He created a false representation of the, the biblical view, and by doing so, yeah, then he was able to defeat it. I agree. If God's choice was arbitrary, then I could say it's not fair, right? But it's not. God's choice is not arbitrary. What have we been saying? He does it with purpose. He knows what he's doing. God knows what he's doing. Like Pastor Boyce had pancreatic cancer, and he told his, he told his congregation, he said, because I have a friend who was there when he said it. She says, I was, I was sitting there when he said it, and he said, if I could change it, I'd make it worse. 
He said this when he had cancer and he died several months later. If I could change it, I'd make it worse. So God's choice is not based on a person's merit. And I think it's easily defended in Scripture. The biblical view of, of election, predestination, um, is, uh, I think, outlined in the Westminster Confession. I'm looking at my clock, and I know I have nine, eight minutes. Um, but I, if you can read this very quickly, that would be great, because I'm not going to read it out loud, because I would rather focus on the Scriptures here. Daniel, yes, sir. I think Yeah, what did I say? I'm sorry. Well, I know that people were confused about it, but I'd make it worse. Well, he'd make God's, he, he'd say, like, if I interfered with God's. It sounded like you were saying, I'd make my cancer worse. Oh, oh, no, 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 I did not mean. No, no, if I could. I just wanted you to. Oh, okay, good. Here, I thought you were talking about something else I said that was important. Um, no, no. <laughs> No, no, what I meant, what is it? if he could interfere, if he interfered with God's sovereign plan, he would make it worse. You know, you, God's, the, God has history planned out, and it's not arbitrary where he could say, oh, well, let's see, let's, and I think I even mentioned that somewhere in here. So, um, yeah, thanks for the clarification. My wife says I say, say things all the time that I really don't mean. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I'm, you know, it sounds... Well, no, she says, you didn't mean that, you know. Uh, no. So, so what I want to do is I want to look, I, if you, even if you want to open in your Bible and have it handy, you can, or you can look at the screen. What I want to do is go through, if there is a proof text for what I'm saying, this would be number one. Between this and Romans 9 and Ephesians 2, I would say Ephesians 1, Ephesians 2, Romans 9, those are the places you, you want to go to 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 kind of support what I've been saying. And so what I want to do is go through this text. So God's choice was made when? Before the foundation of, of, the, of the world, right? That's before creation. Next, God's choice was made with purpose. It says in here, according to the pleasure of his will. And what was the purpose? In order that we would be holy and blameless before him. That's because of the finished work of Jesus Christ. Right? What dictated God's choice? God's good pleasure, not the merit of the individual. See, his choice was, his choice was based upon the kind intention of his will, right? It, it doesn't say, well, Johnny lived a good life, and so that's why I did it. It doesn't say that. God chose us to be holy. And this is what's important. He chose us to be holy, not because we're already holy, right? And that's when I go back to that 2 Timothy 1.9. He called us with a holy calling or to a holy calling, okay? Um, and then God chose the elect to be holy, also refutes the accusation and misrepresentation that predestination overthrows all exhortations to godly living. In other words, people will say, well, if God is sovereign, then it doesn't matter what I do. It does, because we've been called to be holy. As Paul later tells Timothy, he says, he says be diligent and present yourself approved to God. Election has as its goal a holiness to life. Um, Calvin says, therefore, it ought to arouse to us eagerly, to eagerly set our mind upon 
it than to serve as a pretext for doing nothing. In other words, the fact that God has called us is a privilege and that we should act on that to want to please Him. That we should be compelled to please Him, that He had His mercy upon us. God considered nothing outside Himself when making this decree. It says, according to His good pleasure that He purposed in Himself. That's a really interesting, with 1-9. It, it says purposed in Him, but literally it's purposed in Himself. In other words, He purposed it in in himself, in like in what he thought, in what he believed, not purposed in outside, but it was within him. Does that make sense? That's, that's what that phrase means. It's literally purposed in himself. So now here comes the sticky part. With five minutes, I'm going to solve one of the most difficult um, <laughs> uh, issues in Scripture in five minutes. Wow. Okay, so if some are elect to salvation, the question then comes up, doesn't necessarily follow that others are predestined to damnation. And this is a, a famous uh, a phrase from uh, one of Shakespeare's plays, Double, Double, Toil and Trouble. And I, what I, I put it up here as a, uh, to introduce the term double predestination. A doctrine of election that includes the notion that the non-elect are predestined to hell is sometimes called double predestination. Often misunderstood as a terrible doctrine, John Wesley referred to the Calvinist view that God has assigned some people to hell as portraying God worse than the devil. Now, Wesley was a great preacher and did a lot of great work, but he definitely misunderstood this doctrine. Despite its appearance, the contention that God predestines some to heaven and others to hell is an inescapable conclusion. And so I look at it mathematically. Consider all humanity. All humanity is in this set, like a Venn diagram, right? In this circle of all humanity, if we agree that God, the Bible says God predestines some to heaven, is it possible for someone to, from in here to migrate into here? Doesn't make sense, does it? It doesn't. If God predestines one subset of the population to eternal life, doesn't it logically follow that the remainder of this set is predestined to damnation? You know, Luther referred to this conclusion as a resistless logic. We can't get away from it. How is it logically possible for someone who is not predestined to eternal life to migrate to here, right? It, so double, predestined may not, double predestination may not be the best term, okay, but it's not wrong. Non -reform, the the non-reformed view, again, they set up a straw man argument too. They seem, they, what they want to do is look at this symmetric view that as God is working in, in his elect, in his chosen people, and calling them to a holy life, they want to believe that, that, oh, well, God can't be just forcing other people to do evil so they stay out of heaven. That's not happening. They're just doing, God's just not working the effectual grace in their life and just letting them be where, they would, where we would all be if he didn't set his grace in favor upon us. He doesn't have to, as Sproul says, he doesn't have to work fresh evil in them. Well, I'm going to make them really bad now. He doesn't need to do that, right? Um, there's no 
There's no parallel predestination where God works good in these people and he works evil in those people. Uh, you know, all damnation is, is destined for condemnation, condemnation apart from grace. God doesn't need to work extra in the life of a sinner. John, Jesus says to Nicodemus in, in chapter 3, he says, whoever does not believe is condemned already, right? Um, so what we get to then is the reformed view of what we call reprobation. And it's ironic that I mentioned this because um, Pastor was um, kind of dinging this guy um, last Sunday, even, without, even though he didn't mention him by name. And I, I agree with you, Pastor. I think it's really arrogant. You know, Ryrie was the first dude to really stumble out there. Um, and it is about money. It's about marketing. But it doesn't, he's still a smart dude, even if he is greedy. Yeah, yeah. He did some bad things. That was wrong. I totally agree with you. And I knew what, who you were talking about when you were preaching it. Um, but this is still a good definition, and I like it. So I'm, I'm going to put it up here, and I still got to give him credit since, you know, I'm not a plagiarist. Um, so I'm a lot of things, but try not to do that one. Um, well, I do it in my sermons sometimes, you know, we're, I mean, we're, I think some, somebody said, you know, all preachers are plagiarists, you know, I mean, I mean, Hodge said uh, centuries ago that new ideas never come out of the seminary. <laughs> so um, anyway, um, a good definition, I got I to gotta roll, it's already 10 o'clock and I have got um, three pages. Wow, this obviously isn't going to happen. This is my worst job of time management yet in my 12 lessons, so six before, six now. So I'm so sorry about there, this. Um, now i got to pick and choose. This is what you do as a teacher. You decide what is most important now. I learned something really, you know, I don't often learn new things when I'm doing these things. It's more just building on what I already know. But I learned one new thing, at least in a fresh way, that I thought was really cool and I wanted to share it with you. And that's about God's justice. God's justice is not based on any standard that we can come up with. God's justice, God's just every time he does something. God's justice is what he does. We try to evaluate God's decisions or his sovereignty or the Bible based on our view. If God does it, it's just. That's why Paul says, well, you, you can say, you know, well, that's not fair. And what, is, what does Paul say? Well, he, is, he says, is there injustice on God's part? In other words, he puts that, that, uh, hypo, that what do they call that? Uh, my brain's coming up. The, um, the kind of question you ask when you're not, uh, you guys know what I mean. He says, is there injustice on God's part? Romans 9. He says, by no means, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. Who are you to talk back to the potter? So we have to be careful when you try to say, oh, God's not fair. Paul's saying, look, God is fair because what is just, everything that's just is defined by what he does. Justice is what God does. He, God doesn't make, just make decisions and say, hmm, should I do this or should I do that? He doesn't do that. He just does. Do you follow? He has perfect knowledge and he just does. He's holy. And so it's like God acts out of necessity. It's not like he can even go back, he, he would not go back and say, oh, maybe I should let Napoleon win Waterloo. No, he planned it that way on purpose, out of necessity, to carry out his perfect will. 
Notice the word perfect. Perfect. If he changed something, it wouldn't be perfect. That's why Boyce said what he said. If I changed it, it'd be, it wouldn't be perfect. It's God's perfect will. I would make things worse, right? And that's what he's trying to say. So I, I guess I need, to, I need to stop. Wow. So I need another class. What I want to do just really quickly is just say, look, we should, the, the, I'll get to the end. Look at all this stuff. Wow. At least during the notes. What's Paul's secret? I can do all things through him who strengthens me. So here's the, here's the, the bottom line. Content. Be content. Be thankful. God is good. He, has a, he does, you know, that, that thing. God has a wonderful plan for your life. He does. It may not be wonderful by the world's standards. You might be a martyr. And that may not seem wonderful to other people. But God does have a perfect plan for your life. He loves you. Be content. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this word. We thank you for um, the promise that you are in control and that you love us and that uh, you have purpose. Um, help us to, to be mindful of that, to be thankful, to be content. Encourage others. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to Truth in Life. If you enjoy this series, make sure to subscribe. And remember, this is truth to live by.